Tonight's broadcast is brought to you by our supporters. You know who you are. Thank you, folks. We could not have done this without you. High on a mountainside near the asylum in the ghost town of Jerome, Arizona, you are listening to Jerry and Kathy Wilkes. and views expressed on the Jerry Will Show are those of the people that make them and do not necessarily reflect those of Jerry Wills, the Jerry Will Show, the affiliates or sponsors, or Channel U. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Jerry Wills Show. And guess what? I'm Jerry Wills. Uh, well, I've got someone special for you for this show. <clears throat> His name is Matt Gomer, Gober, and he's an award-winning author and uh, has published five books on a variety of, of subjects. They're really interesting. I have not read them. I've read excerpts from them, but I've had uh, some conversations with Mark, and it's really interesting you know, the uh, the level of information that he has, the things he has to say. He's going to tell us all about himself here in just a second. Um, I think that you're going to gain a lot of insight just because we're going to try to cover the books during the show. And um, I do have some questions, of course, for Mark. I want to find out more about the books. I'm sure you'd be interested in knowing that, too. I'd like to find out how it is he came to do this. And when you hear about his background, you'll understand why I'm curious. So, you know, without waiting any longer, let's just jump right to it. Hey, Mark, how you doing? Gary, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real privilege to have you on, Mark. It really is. Um, I mean, to have written five books, you know, that's an accomplishment in itself. I've uh, not written really one, <laughs> although I've got a wealth of material. I could tell you all about it, but I just don't seem to have that, um, you know, I just don't seem to have that writing skill. Um, I can do just off the cuff talking. And I've done a lot of that. But just sitting down and devoting time to writing, it seems like I just don't have the time. So I'm really interested to hear you know, all about you, but tell the folks about yourself before we go any farther. Sure. Um, and I'm sure we'll go into my background a bit in more, more detail, but the brief version is that I have a very mainstream uh, history. I went to Princeton for undergrad. I worked in investment banking in New York, and then I worked in Silicon Valley advising technology companies. Um, my first book was published in 2018. And since then, there have been five total published. So it's been a busy few years, and I actually left my firm to continue on this path. I've also produced a podcast series that was in 2019. It's an eight-episode series on the brain and consciousness. 
And I currently serve on the board of two nonprofit organizations. One is the Institute of Noetic Sciences, which is founded by uh, Dr. Edgar Mitchell, the Apollo 14 astronaut, studying consciousness phenomena and things like that. And the other is an organization that's currently under construction outside of Asheville, North Carolina. It's called the School of Wholeness and Enlightenment, which will be a retreat center and an education platform. So that's my brief background. Wow. Well, that's pretty neat. When do you have a? When do you suppose this place outside of Asheville is going to be ready to receive people? Hopefully, sometime next year in 2024. But we'll see because construction takes time and COVID slows things down. But I was just there a few weeks ago for a board meeting, and it's gorgeous. Wow, fantastic! How much acreage do you have there? I actually don't know the number, but it is very spacious, and it's uh, it's a special place. You feel like you're in a different world. Because it's in the Blue Ridge Mountains. You know, I've I've been I grew up in Kentucky, so I'm familiar with the terrain. And and I've <clears throat> Kathy and I've been over to Asheville a few times, driving through that entire area. Wow, you know that you're right. You know there are some places there that are just mind blowing. But when you have that up and running, you know, you can let me know or point me to where I get on a mailing list. I am on your mailing list, I think. But just uh, let yeah. us know. And I'll put it out to everyone or we can have you back on. You can talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. And there's also thank you. Um, there's a website currently up, even though the organization is not um, is not having people come to stay there. And it's the School of Wholeness and Enlightenment. And the abbreviation is so we S.O.W.E. So if you search that on Google, you'll find the site that has the basic info. Fantastic. Love it. You know, not far from there, you have the Monroe Institute. Um, mm. just north in, in Virginia. And, uh, you know, that, that has been a big draw for a lot of folks over the years. So, you know, you're in a good part of the world for this sort of thing. There's a lot of energy around Asheville anyway. It's really good energy there. Yes, I noticed that when I was just there. There's something different about it. And it actually reminded me a bit of some of the other, if you want to call them sacred sites or ley line locations that I've been to. Yeah, exactly. Been to Sedona. It, it has that similar kind of feel, Glastonbury. Yeah, uh, there was a time probably 15, 18 years ago when people were saying, Jerry, you really need to move out to Asheville, North Carolina. It's the other Sedona on the East Coast. Hmm. So it was winter. We drove through. It was cold. And I don't like the cold, so we continued. <laughs> but, you know, been through there in the summertime, too. And you're right. It's, it's terrific. It really is terrific over there. So... You were in all, I mean, you, your background in mean, Princeton and working these different places in finance, what, what were you doing? Well, what I was doing on a daily basis was grunt work, basically, investment banking. On a, on a metaphysical uh, level, I was lost. That's the way I would put it. So I was sort of in the zombie world where I was just following whatever I thought was the next big achievement. So when I graduated... Um, I was also a college athlete. I was one of the captains of the tennis team. So I was this very like competitive, competitive with myself. That was my orientation. Here's this thing in front of me. I've got to succeed and achieve. And a lot of my classmates went into investment banking. So I decided to do that. But I, I joined in 2008 in New York. So this was during the financial crisis. And I was at one of the oh, big wow. banks that was having problems. Um, so what I was doing, Jerry, on a daily basis was trying to survive. I was doing what my superiors asked of me, which was financial modeling, uh, pitch books to try to pitch other 
companies that we were uh, advising to try to get them to work with us. So price charts, look at looking at the stock price history, uh, different sorts of financial analysis and general industry analysis. Wow. 2008 was a rough time for a lot of people. And it kind of looks like, you know, where we're at right now, banks are going insolvent together. Yeah, you know, that's that's kind of a worrisome thing for a lot of folks. I mean, there's there's so many rumors, so many undercurrents with all of that. You know that you uh, got out of it's probably a good thing because I, I don't know. I mean, I was in my own business. We were talking about that, and there comes a point where you're just looking at the the, the lay of the land, and there's nothing new. It's always the same over and over, just different faces, or, or in your case, maybe different balance sheets, but it just becomes mind-numbing. There isn't any any challenge in life with that. So what happened that took you from that arena and moved you into an entirely different place? Because let's face it, going from finance and in this world that you were in into this realm of writing books about spiritual you know, essences and details, that is quite a divergent place. Mm -hmm. So what happened? Yeah, I never, I never expected it, but I actually had an intermediate step. So I left New York in 2010 to join another firm. Uh, first, I was in the Boston office, and then I was in Silicon Valley, and that's where I was. I was there for the majority of my time, and I spent 10 years at the firm. Um, started off as an associate, so I was at the bottom of the totem pole and worked my way up to partner. So again, I was still very much focused on that just worldly achievement stuff. Um, in some ways, when I left New York, it was a relief in that I was very unhealthy when I was in New York. There was so much pressure given the financial circumstances, and I was in the group that was responsible for advising other financial institutions, so insurance companies and banks and asset managers. So our clients were also having problems. So I was in a very distressed environment, and leaving New York actually was a bit of a reprieve. So I started to feel a bit better, but I didn't have any sense of direction in my life. I didn't in college either. I, I had this worldview that I would call uh, materialistic or physicalist. I believe that there is no meaning to life. And when you die, that's the end of your experience. So anything spiritual or religious, that's just superstition that we've transcended as a society. That was my mindset. I thought science had taught us new things. So it's hard to go in that direction with so much pressure and so much achievement focus with that kind of a worldview. And I, I ultimately hit a wall when I was in Silicon Valley. Uh, this was in 2014 or 2015. There were two categories, basically, in addition to the metaphysical struggle, which I think was the ultimate struggle. Uh, but in my personal life, things weren't going the way that I wanted with dating and things like that. But the, the really big one was the professional life because I was so focused on work and there were some deals that I worked on and had spent a lot of time on that didn't go the way that I wanted for reasons that were out of everyone's control. It just it goes that way sometimes. And on top of that, the industry that I was working in in Silicon Valley focused on intellectual property and in particular patents. So we help companies that had valuable patent portfolios, sometimes companies that have tens of thousands of patents, so global massive companies that people have heard of, and then sometimes startups that where the patents were a big part of the their initiation really into the industry. What happened was uh, their, the laws changed, number one, and there were some court cases that, that affected patent valuation as well. All of it brought the value of patents down because it became more difficult to enforce a patent that was being infringed. So I was working on deals that involved patents. I was essentially in a new recession that most people didn't hear about. So 
I was confronted with something similar in a way to what happened in New York. And when I think back to it, Jerry, because I'm in such a different place now, um, it's almost hard to get myself back in that mindset. I was not, I wasn't looking for a new worldview. Okay. I was lost. I was not feeling good about my life. And I started listening to podcasts. This was in 2016. Lots of people were doing it at the time. It, actually, podcasts are now much more popular, but at the time it was starting to become more popular. And I was listening to venture capitalists talk on different shows. And then I started to listen to some um, like alternative health shows. One, for example, is called Extreme Health Radio. And I heard about things like sensory deprivation, float tanks where you float in salt water and there's no light, oh, sure. no noise. Um, and I was actually, I started to do that because I, I had heard about psychedelics and how that could alter brain states. But I said, I don't feel comfortable with that. Why don't I do a sensory deprivation tank? Why don't I try breathing exercises? So I did the Wim Hof breathing methods where he's been yeah. able to withstand low temperatures using that. So this was summer of 2016. I was experimenting with various things. And then when I listened to the show, Extreme Health Radio just randomly came across an episode that had been recorded, I don't know, months before of a woman who talked about psychic phenomena that she worked with, energy that she worked with, and even spiritual beings. And I had not heard people talk about that in a serious way. And I was very intrigued. I mean, my life didn't change on the spot, but it was enough for me to then listen to that woman's podcast because she mentioned it during the, that episode. Her name's Laura Powers and her podcast is called Healing Powers. And they're pretty short episodes, but I had a long drive from San Francisco down to Silicon Valley every day. So I had a lot of time when I wasn't working to listen to podcasts. So very quickly, I listened to tons of her episodes and I found that there were many people from all over the world from different backgrounds who had a very similar view of reality, which completely contradicted my own. And that was the start of this journey because once I heard that, I, I realized I couldn't dismiss all of it. I couldn't, I couldn't conclude that they were colluding with each other. I didn't think they were all lying. I wasn't sure if they were delusional, but something seemed to be happening. And then I started to look at the scientific evidence and realized, wow, I didn't, I thought science was one way and there's a lot of other scientific stuff coming from credible organizations and scientists. I didn't know this existed. So this is the fall of 2016. I was totally disoriented. I spent Thanksgiving by myself in Muir Woods um, up north of San Francisco because I just had, I didn't even know who to talk to. I thought I was going crazy because in my network, this was not the sort of thing people talk about. Mm -hmm. And um, eventually I got the courage to start talking to people as I became more comfortable with the science and the evidence. And I was surprised, but many of my friends were, were open to it. And they said, wow, Mark, if any of this is true, I need to rethink my life. So I just kept exploring it. And then the next summer in 2017, I said, I should write a book about this, uh, even though I was still working at the firm. So I, there was a part of me that was res resistant because I was not a partner yet at the time. And to write a book about topics related to the paranormal, the brain, consciousness, survival of bodily death, psychic phenomena, that's not something that a, a Silicon Valley business advisor is really doing. Uh, but I decided, look, this is going to be a scientific book. I'm going to have the citations in the back, just like I do when I'm presenting to a client. So I'm going to do it. And that book was published in 2018. In 2019, I did a podcast series with an old friend who was in the, he's, he's in the media business and was very nice to take on this kind of alternative project because he works in the sports industry primarily. But he said, Mark, we can take these concepts that you wrote about and you'll interview the same scientists, but we'll turn it into something that's going to be mainstream. So that's called Where Is My Mind? It's an eight episode series, still available, but that was 2019. Then at the end of 2019, so this is pre-COVID, and I didn't consciously know, of course, that anything was going to happen, but I was having this strong sense, which I had had even before that time, but it hit me really hard at the end of the year, that I was splitting my energy. 
I was in a field that I was never fully passionate about in the beginning. When I graduated from college, I went into business because I didn't know what else to do. So I was kind of on this conveyor belt that I never really intended to get on it. I didn't do it intentionally. It was just the only thing to do. And I was being pulled in this other direction of trying to understand who are we? Why are we here? I feel like I only scratched the tip of the iceberg with the first book in the podcast. So I decided to leave the firm. And that was a very difficult decision and difficult conversations for me to have with my business partners who I'd spent a lot of time with working on deals together. But um, I, it wasn't like I was leaving for a competitor, but I was literally just going, not having a job lined up. And um, so I did it. And long story short, here we are three and a half years later. I still have not found a new you know, traditional job, but I've written four more books. Um, one is on the first one. Um, after leaving my job is about spiritual awakening. Then I wrote about political and economic theory as it relates to spirituality. Then I wrote a book about UFOs, aliens, and spirits. And the most recent one is is more sociological, sociocultural. It's about the World Economic Forum's Great Reset. Uh, but generally, and I want to make this point now because it's really going to imbue all of our discussions, is I'm interested in understanding the fundamentals of our existence. That's what drives me because I, I want to understand who or what am I? I still don't really know. I could give answers to all these questions, but I don't really know. Um, I want to understand what we're doing here. What should we be doing in our daily lives, in our lives generally? What should we not be doing? What's our true history? What is this planet? Really fundamental stuff that it's amazing our society goes about its daily life in most cases and is not even considering this stuff. You're right. <clears throat> You're right. Oh my gosh, you know, that's that's quite a story. Um, quite an experience, really. Not a story, but quite an experience in life. That had to have been really, really hard for you. Because obviously you were in a business where you were making, you know, an adequate amount of money. You know, the challenges <laughs> were there, but the, you know, reunification was also there. And... Uh, <clears throat> Then to just push the stop button and go off this direction, you know, it's like chasing butterflies in some people's mind. You know, it had to have been. And, you know, you're you're taking a huge damn risk. And I, <laughs> I've talked to a lot of folks. And you know, it, it takes something else inside of you to be able to do that. I mean, whether it's it's not bravery, but it's it's like an inner knowing that you can't really put any words to. Because I did that too. I, I walked away from all of it. And here I am. You know, my, my background is an energy healer. And I'm known all over the world now. But not because I was promoting myself. Everybody else promoted me. TVs, magazines, you know talk shows and it just spread around the world but you know you say here you are three three and a half years later and here you are you know you have survived um i'm sure you have a nice place to live food to eat and you have plans and you're looking towards the future for all the things that uh, can possibly happen me too and it's it's such an amazing journey when you when you take that step and it's like you're stepping off into the darkness and there's no telling what's there it reminds me of that scene in indiana jones where he had to take that step of faith 
You remember mm-hmm. that? And it's like, boom. Well, he hit solid ground, but it didn't look like it was even there. You know, that, that, takes, um, that takes something that a lot of folks don't have. You know, they, they wish they could, they wish they had it, you know, all that and more. But you did it. So, you know, that's, that's, that's damn impressive. Good for you. I, I appreciate that. And you as well, Jerry. And, and we see the amazing results of, of your decision and how many people you've been able to help through that decision. So um, I'm inspired by that. And hopefully I can have a positive impact as well. But I feel like uh, I didn't have a choice I when I made the decision. For me, I, I just didn't have a damn choice. If I don't do this, I'm going to die. That That's, yeah. you know, it wasn't that at the very beginning when these feelings were a little bit you know, they were surfacing and there was ambivalence about, you know, what I was doing. You know, I, I, don't, I don't care about doing this anymore, but I still got to do it. But there came a point where I, I woke up to the concept that if I don't do this, I'm going to die. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the ultimate result. And I figured, well, hell, uh, eventually I will anyway. So I might as well live a little between now and then. Yes. Take a chance. Exactly. So, yeah, yeah, that's how I think about it, too. Um, and I, I mean, you you hit the nail on the head. There were financial considerations. Of course, I had a very stable uh, situation that was I was on a great path in my early 30s um, as, a, as a young partner at the firm. I was really in good shape with good people and all that stuff. But there was a, a greater calling. And basically what happened was that the worldview that I was starting to develop led me to believe that there is a greater purpose to my existence, to everyone's existence, than to do what I was doing on a daily basis. And I couldn't rationalize or justify spending so much of my energy in that area because it didn't align with with the direction I wanted to be in. So I do think I probably would have continued on. And it was bad things would have happened to me because and I was feeling it um, internally. I felt in my body the anxiety of having to split the energy. And it was there was a weight that was lifted when I made the decision because I was then yeah. able to follow my passions more seamlessly. But I will say it's not, it, it has been somewhat smooth, but in other ways, there's lots of uncertainty. I mean, writing books sure. is a typically a cash flow negative endeavor, um, but it's it's following my passions. And I've, I've been fortunate to be in a situation where I could take this time um, to be able to do it. And I, I'm more concerned about doing things that I feel like are aligned with the nature of reality and I, where I feel like I'm having a positive impact in in a particular way. I think I was having a positive impact in business. We were helping companies, but it wasn't that wasn't me. I wanted to be doing something on a more, I don't know, existential scale. I that's that's it. where my calling was. Yeah, you know, and for me, in my store, with my background in engineering, I didn't really work well in the corporate world. I had a couple of jobs, engineering jobs. I didn't care for it. So I opened up my own business where I was repairing high-end electronics and consumer electronics. And all the while, you know, I, I had these different abilities, you know, healing being one of them. And I was using the healing ability just to put my hand on top of, you know, whatever I was working on close my eyes, take a breath, look inside. Oh, there's the problem. Just go in, fix it out the door, fast money. And no, I mean, I fixed things no one could fix. So, you know, Kathy came along 
And she said, you know, you're supposed to be helping people, not fixing machines. And that was, uh, that was one of those moments, you know, where it's like, well, yeah, but this is how I know how to make some money. Well, don't worry about the money. Just worry about doing what you're supposed to be doing. The mm -hmm. rest will take care of itself. And by God, it did. It was astonishing. <laughs> One of the first people that I worked on was this brain dead guy over in Chandler, Arizona. They were going to pull the plug on it. And I went over because they requested that I try. And there's not that many people who knew about me at the time. And by golly, he opened his eyes and woke up. Well, then Fox News got a hold of that story, made a big to-do about it. And for the next 11 years, twice a year, they did a big story about me. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's when you get to that point where you feel like you could be doing something useful for people instead of useful for the bottom line, it is kind of a, a glow inside where you feel like you've actually done something useful, beneficial. You've, you've made the world a little bit better in incremental ways. And it sounds like from the books you've written, you know, and the podcast you've done, that you've done this. And while I'm thinking of it, Mark, <clears throat> if you'll email me resource links to the podcasts, you know, anything that you want folks watching this broadcast to have access to, send me the links and I'll make sure that these links will be included with this video. And folks, take a look at the links uh, here with this video and you'll be able to go right to wherever, you know, you need to go to, to catch some of these podcasts. I'm sure they're fascinating. I look forward to listening to it too, so... <laughs> A little bit of selfish motivation there as well. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I appreciate it, Terry. Um, that's the way you describe your own journey. I, I see just so many parallels in my own psychology in terms of what I value now. And now I'm at the point where I can identify the sensation of knowing that I'm on the right path that is service-oriented to some degree. At first, when I was doing this, I didn't, I wasn't able to identify the the, the the feeling, and it's hard to describe because it's not a physical thing. But now I know it when it when it hits. So, if we go back to the end of 2019 when I decided to leave my firm, I didn't know I was going to write other books. And people were asking me, "Are you going to write anything after the first book?" And you did the podcast. Are you going to write anymore? And I said, "Are you crazy?" I mean, that was a lot to I do the first time. It was a lot to do, and I didn't even think I was going to write one book. What are you talking about? Yeah. Shortly after I just made the decision and spoke to people at my firm, the idea for the second book came in. So there was there was like a blockage that was released. And each time now, so the second book came out and then I had time to research more because I was not working and we were in lockdowns and I was researching for a while. And then all of a sudden, wow, here's a new one. So it, this has happened every time. I end up in the space of not knowing and I'm just guided by what I feel is right to learn about. And then typically I have a actually this is this has happened every time. I have a paradigm shift myself. Something changes in the way I look at the world in a very significant way. And I say, wow, that just clicked for me. I need to share this. And then I say, I've got to write a book. So I'm in an interesting place to talk to you right now because the most recent book, the fifth one came out a few months ago. I don't know what that next thing is, but I've been in this situation before where I, I am 
in trust. That's the best way to put it. And we'll see what happens. You know, you'd mentioned earlier about the use of hallucinogenics versus using the flotation tank. I've done both. Uh, the flotation tank is vastly interesting. That was mm -hmm. a trip. Um, left you all salty, but... <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Folks, if you don't know what that is, it's a big tank that you get into. It's terrifically, just absolutely saturated with salt. And you float pretty much on top of the water. The water temperature is nice, so it's not like you're getting a chill or anything. It's meant to be a neutral environment. Not too hot, not too cold. And you're in this tank, lid closes, you're in darkness. You can't hear anything, you can't see anything, sensory deprivation. And that allows the mind to just suddenly unlock. And some people have visions, some people see light. A lot of folks do this over and over again. They have epiphanies. Mark, with the, uh, the hallucinogenics, um, I tried that back in the early 90s uh, in Peru in the Amazon jungle, and I, I was there with a group of people that I had organized a tour to the Amazon. Well, actually to Peru, not just the Amazon. And it was 25 people. Um, met a fellow, his name is Mateo. We've known each other now ever since because he's really good. And he is an ayahuasquero. Well, I didn't want to do this. I had my inhibitions, you know, it's like, I don't know if I want to go that direction or not. What the hell is this stuff? You know, I'm a little worried about it. But I was convinced and I did it. Wow. I still remember all the intrinsic details from that first experience. There was so much information that just was evident under those circumstances. If you ever decide you want to try something like that, we can talk. Um, there, there, are, there are things out there. Some people use mushrooms, some people use ketamine, some use LSD. Um, my personal favorite, of course, is ayahuasca. Uh, it's best if done in the jungle, though. <laughs> so it's not an easy, an easy access point. Although there are places uh, where people are doing ayahuasca ceremonies in the States, I guess, but I've never done it in the States before. But you do gain a lot of, um, a lot of insight. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a terrific spiritual journey when it's done correctly. Mm -hmm. If it's not, then it's, it's kind of, in my opinion, it's pointless to do. Because what's, what are you going to gain from just, you know, getting wacky? You know, but uh, now you can get a lot of insight. And maybe some of these days you'll do that. If you ever want more information, we can talk. Yeah, I appreciate it. I mean, my most profound experiences in this journey so far have been through meditation. And I think they're probably way less profound than what most, pe most people have experienced. Um, I've felt a lot of energy. So that's kind of, that's validating a lot of the things I researched. But when I left my job or when I was transitioning out, I worked part-time for a little bit before the lockdowns in 2020. And I went on two silent meditation retreats uh, with a week in between. And right before that, I, I went on a, um, it's called a Panchakarma, uh, an Ayurvedic therapy session. It was a five-day retreat. So I was in a retreat binge for a few weeks. And... Um, one of the meditation retreats was with Adyashanti, and the other was with Mukti, his wife. So they have a very similar philosophy, but it was silent, 
no talking, no gesturing. And they were a little bit under a week each. So I started to feel stuff physically in my body. And when I came back from the first of those retreats, it was with Mukti first, and I meditated back in my apartment in San Francisco, uh, I had this sensation that I don't need anything from the world anymore. This, this is what was happening in a flash. Um, I can just be a vessel, like that sort of a thing. And then this uh, sensation came over my body that is difficult to describe, but it's almost like whatever density I have in this physical form was replaced with a lightness, and it was extremely pleasurable. I, I guess I would compare it to love. It was on that in that realm, something very pleasant, um, but it was so overwhelming that I thought I was going to die, basically. I started to, I, my eyes were closed, but I started spinning. And the thought came in, if you keep doing this, you're going to disappear to some other dimension and people are going to be upset. You have family, you can't do that. So I stopped it. The energy stopped. So I, I still have bits of that energy um, that, that I feel all the time. I feel it right now speaking with you, but I haven't had that kind of otherworldly experience that you probably have where you you see and probably interact with intelligences that I've written about and I've talked to lots of people who've done it, but I haven't had that level of experience yet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my, my first inception with ayahuasca was having a conversation with the spirit, spiritual essence of ayahuasca, which is a woman, it's female. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, like a lot of people think, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm a healer and I'm psychic and I can do this, that, and the other. And I, I must be, you know, doing really well in this, this department. Yeah, I don't talk about it much, but I'm up there. I can tell I must be. And ayahuasca, when I've fought it and fought it and fought it for hours to try and just maintain my focus and not feel all... With ayahuasca, you close your eyes, you're somewhere else. Mm. And you open your eyes, you're back here going, oh, hell. <laughs> so <laughs> finally, I got tired. It was the wee hours of the morning. Sun was starting to come up. And I was like, oh. So I closed my eyes, and Ayahuasca goes, why are you fighting me so hard? Why did you even do this in the first place? I said, well, because I felt like I should. But I don't like this feeling. And she said, Relax. I said, okay, I'll relax. She says, no, really, relax. Take a breath, relax. So I did, and I'm laying there. And then I was somewhere else. And she was showing me this, this um, I don't know, it was a centipede or caterpillar or something going across the ground. I mean, this isn't like just a vivid dream. This is like you're really there. And she said, you see that? And I said, yeah. See, see, that's the ground, yeah. Well, its belly is on the ground and it's moving forward. That's where you are. You think you've got something special going? That's where you are. Would you like to know where you could be? And I said, yeah. So I felt pretty disappointed. She says, look up. And there was a bird, big old bird flying around. Big old black bird. She says, that's where you could be. I'll show you how to get there. Well, I don't think I ever got there, but I did get off the ground. And that's after maybe 20 times doing ayahuasca. And every time is a very unique lesson, a unique learning experience. It's all just very unique. So, yeah, you see things. And they're very visual. 
and it's very real and it's just well it is it just really defies you know your your common sense of reality and reasoning but wow i mean you come back from all that and it's like holy mackerel i got it i i was pretty pumped up thinking i was something special hell i'm i'm this damn centipede scooting its belly across the ground <laughs> and it sounds like you know you've had experiences that have elevated you too you know the, the um the retreats that you went to they had to have had a profound improvement in your spiritual essence it feels that way it feels like it was irreversible like there was a a shift uh, yeah. the combination of having left my job and then being in that space of silence for so long to be with your thoughts and your emotions and their ups and downs mm -hmm. emotionally with that it was way harder than i thought it was going to be because i was just signing up for things i said i'm leaving my job i've got to do all this stuff i never had time to leave for days and turn my phone off so i just did it and it's harder than i thought but uh, worthwhile the way i would i would compare it to when i would leave the flotation tank so these were hour session. Sometimes I did multi-hour sessions in the flotation tank. I would come out of the tank and out of the silence feeling like, um, I don't know how to put words to this. It's, there's clouds had been lifted from my consciousness. That's the, that's the best way to put it. So something had been lifted. It was already there, but now there was a clarity. And when I came back from the retreats, I had that clarity, but it felt much more permanent. Whereas when I did those few hours with the flotation tanks, it was just a temporary and the clouds came back. I think there was something permanent from those retreats. Excuse me. <clears throat> that's, that's kind of, um, you know, when we go to the jungle, <clears throat> there's no phone reception. It feels pretty weird to turn everything off and just go, okay, that's done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's got to be. Yeah even more difficult if you've got good reception and you're just turning it off and walking away from it <clears throat> so let's go on to your books um you know, you've written five let's talk a little bit about each one of them so the folks have a kind of a thumbnail sketch of what you've what you've done sure yeah we'll give a thumbnail sketch and whatever you want to dive into jerry we can do that sure. next you bet. but the, the first the first one is really the fundamental one for me because it informed my my worldview that is embedded within the other books. So the first one's called an end to upside down thinking, and all the books have that uh, beginning few words and end upside down something. And when I wrote the first one, I didn't know there was going to be an end upside down anything else. So it was an end to upside down thinking. That was the book I wrote, and that was going to be it for me. And what I what I mean by upside down thinking is the view of consciousness that the the world traditionally has, which is that we have a material world. And then human beings evolve and then they develop a brain and then consciousness pops out of their brain somehow and that is the materialistic or the physicalist view of consciousness and I, in that book i challenge it and i say what if it's the reverse consciousness is fundamental and everything in the material world comes from consciousness mm -hmm. so i cover the scientific evidence which would support that hypothesis so things like psychic phenomena survival of bodily death near-death experiences children with past life memories telepathy all that stuff which points to a worldview shift on the nature of consciousness. So that's the first book. The second book is an end to upside down living, which looks at the 
basically, how would you think about living your life with this new worldview? And the question I ask in that book is, what is the overall intention of your life? I ask that of the reader and I ask it of myself. So the book seeks to answer that question by looking at some of the scientific evidence, some of the spiritual philosophies around the world to orient one's compass in a direction that's much more aligned than I used to be with the nature of reality. So I feel like it's it's pointing in a certain direction, whereas I used to be somewhere else. Uh, third book is a bit different because I, I was... This was post, uh, I was in lockdown, the lockdown phase and looking more at what's happening in the world and looking at the political landscape. So it's called an end to upside down liberty, where I make the argument that the way we do government around the world, even in the United States, is fundamentally opposed to fundamental spiritual principles. So I, I make an argument that yes, governments provide important services, but the structure that we have with between government and citizens has to be rethought in a much more voluntary manner. Whereas right now we have more of an implicit relationship with government. So I, I, I pose some ideas which were very radical to me when I learned about them, but I know for people who are, are new to them, it can be a, a pretty big paradigm shift. The fourth book in End to Upside Down Contact is the evidence that we are not alone. So I look at both physical evidence, so things like UFO sightings, but also non-physical evidence, more spiritual phenomena, psychedelics, people encounter intelligences, yeah. near-death experiences, right? So there's a there seems to be a, a metaphysical component to the uh, non-human intelligence phenomenon. And trying to, in that book, I just try to make sense of lots of disparate areas of evidence and some of the historical evidence that is out there, what different religious traditions talk about and mythological texts. And try to make some sense of all of it. What's our interaction with these other beings? That's the fourth book. And the fifth book, the most recent one, is called An End to the Upside Down Reset. And I explain what the Great Reset is in that book, which is something I, I've learned a lot of people haven't heard of it. Um, it's something I've been tracing for the last few years, but it is a stated vision for society that the World Economic Forum has put out. And this was in June of 2020 when it was formally announced, and Prince Charles at the time announced it. John Kerry, Al Gore, so some very powerful people have announced a vision for the society. And I pr provide a critique of that vision, I think, in many ways, uh, culturally, politically, economically, environmentally, technologically, and most importantly, metaphysically, the direction they're pointing us in is not optimal for us. So I argue we should be moving in a different direction. So I would say that book is more sociological. It incorporates aspects of the previous books, but is, is looking more at what's actually happening in the world today. Wow, that's <clears throat> wow. That's, that's that's quite a genre to move across in several different several different arenas. Not everybody. And it's interesting that. you say that, Jerry, because it's been a challenge for me. Because um, my first book was published four and a half years ago, I was in the science metaphysical space with the first book, and as a new right. author, it's challenging to be known, or at least you know. Yeah. And so I'm I'm in these new spaces where I'm not really known. Well. How the book sales been going? The first book has sold the best, but it was also the one where I hired the most help in terms of publicists. I had multiple publicists helping with it, and we had a, a multiple month lead up because of the way we did printing with my publisher. So um, that had the most notoriety, and the other ones have been slower on a relative basis, but I also haven't hired anyone. So uh, some of these things I, I found they're hard to predict. They're really hard to predict. You know, one of the things when um, people ask me about writing a book, so look how many books there are. Go to Barnes & Noble. Well, there was a Barnes & Noble to go to. <clears throat> we'll say library at this point. <laughs> um, 
you know, that's that's pretty impressive, though. Have you done any of your books on audiobook? All of them. Really? Yep, I, re- yep, I read them. Well, that's very groovy. Good for you, because that's <laughs> not an easy thing to do. This is another one of those things where I went into it not realizing how hard it was going to be. It is it's <laughs> very draining. And then the edit- editorial process is uh, there's so much nitpicking that goes on in it. Oh, but it's actually really good as the author to do it because um, I I hear things. I hear the way it's coming across, and I can make last-minute tweaks sometimes yeah. to a few words here and there. And the book, um, I think it's more of a relief when I hear it spoken then i listen to the book again i say okay this is a project that i feel good about and we'll see what happens i hope it helps people but it's like that extra boost of confidence to read it you know rod haber the the well he's retired now but he was the uh news director for fox he followed me around for oh hell eight or nine years after that first story i told you about the brain dead guy Mm-hmm. He thought it was a lot of smoke and mirrors until there was a real huge accumulation of evidence. Anyway, he wrote this book about me. It's called Jerry or Healer, the Jerry Wills story. And so there was no audiobook. And people said, well, why, why don't you just do an audiobook? I've got all the equipment. Why not? Great microphone. All the stuff. Okay, I guess I could. Oh, my God. That was such a mess. So then I decided I'd do broadcast where I just read it, you know. Camera going. I'm just reading it and just do a chapter or two, you know. That was a series of broadcasts. And that was not as critically done as what I really would like to have done. But it was better than nothing. But wow, you know, I mean, if you don't have a place to go to, even if it's a special room that's outfitted the way it's supposed to be, and having someone who can take that engineering skill and they take care of that stuff, so you don't have to mess with it. But boy, I'll tell you what, you try to do all that stuff yourself, it is just exhausting. You know, oh, I'm going to re-record that. I slurred that syllable. <laughs> Kathy's like, oh, yeah. no one's going to notice that. Oh, yeah, I noticed it, so everybody's going to notice it. You know, you, you become your worst critic, don't you? <laughs> that, that is the process, and you're, you're totally right, Jerry. Each time I've had to hire an audio editor, I go into a studio that has all the um, acoustics set up, and there are a million mistakes that happen where you misread a word or something and then you have to restart and they chop it up and put it back together. And then I listen to it and realize, wait, that's too long a pause. I don't like the way I said that word. And by the end of listening to it, I've got an Excel spreadsheet of a hundred things that I want to go back in the studio and just fix that thing. So it's a long process, but every time I'm happy that I did it. Um, Also, in addition to my own satisfaction, I found that there are many people who do not want to read books physically. You're right. And a big chunk of my sales are audiobooks because people want to listen. Well, you know something? I don't have time to read a book, but I have time to listen to audiobooks. I mean, we're driving, like we're going to be going to Nebraska in, you know, next week. And just hour after hour, sitting there, steering the wheel, you know, going down the freeway in a 40-foot RV. You can listen to an audiobook. <laughs> 
and it takes all the pain away from just sitting there staring with little, you know, like eyes on stalks like a crab, just looking at the highway. It makes it all much better. So yeah, I'll <clears throat> I'm sure I'll be one of your customers on your audiobooks. I'd like to Okay, well I'll 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 gift it to you. You let me know and I can I can send it to you. Be happy to. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. But I want to support you as well. So however you want to work it. Thank um you. But also get that information so folks will know where to go get these things because I don't have a clue. But I'm sure once you give me the details, I'll pass it on to others. Thank you. Um, so, what you know, you're talking about, you know, the flotation tank, and it's it's definitely affecting your brain, but it's also affecting your awareness and your consciousness. What do you think the relationship is between awareness, consciousness? you know, kind of used at the same time, and the brain. Yeah. Right. Well, when we start talking about awareness, consciousness there, we, we run into language issues of dealing with very abstract terminology. So yeah. let's broadly here define consciousness as the part of us that experiences, even though there are aspects of consciousness that you could consider other things. But let's just use that general definition. Um, if we didn't have consciousness, let's put it this way, we wouldn't be able to experience this conversation. Right. So consciousness is is essential to all of our existences. And um, I was shocked when I started to research that science doesn't understand it. Yeah. <laughs> science Magazine has said this is the number two question that remains in all of science. And the way they phrase it is, uh, what is the biological basis of consciousness? And the number one question is, what is the universe made out of? So they're actually interrelated questions. But their question, what is the biological basis of consciousness, presumes that there is a biological basis of consciousness in the first place. And the entire argument that I'm making and that many others have made as well is, wait a second, there isn't a biological basis, that consciousness is beyond the body. And the brain is certainly involved in the way in which we perceive the world. But the mistake that I think neuroscientists are making is that they then say, well, because the brain is so closely related to our conscious experience, it must be the case that the brain is creating consciousness. And that subtlety is really critical because what, what the, the case that I'm making is that the brain, to use a few analogies, which are probably imprecise, but it's the best we can do. The brain is like an antenna receiver or transmitter that's mm -hmm. picking up consciousness. Sure. Or another analogy is that the brain is a filtering mechanism or a blindfold that processes consciousness. So when you get the blindfold out of the way, do ayahuasca, have a near-death experience, meditation, all of a sudden you realize that your ordinary perception is just a sliver of reality, and there's a much broader reality out there. There's an yeah. expansion of consciousness. So I think our individual consciousness is just a part of something much broader, and we are interconnected in that broader consciousness, even though we don't always feel it. You know, the way I see it, uh, the, if you take a computer, you go down to the, you know, the main chip, that's like the brain. But everything that it, that is capable of being done with that chip is the program. Well, what's the program? Mm. Zeros and ones in that case. But, you know, in the brain, it's much more sophisticated. It is energy patterns, and the energy patterns are, are what the brain is using to run its program. These energy patterns created by external and internal forces. And it has to be two different states of... Um, so different states of being with that as far as I have been able to determine. But your your brain, when something happens to your brain and 
it's like things aren't right, can't think right, you know, brain injury, whatever. The processor's damaged, but the consciousness and the awareness are both intact, but the, the mechanism that serves it up to interface with this reality is damaged. You, you see what I'm talking about? Yes, exactly. What do you, what do you think about yeah, that? It's, I agree. So, so it's almost like, another way of putting it, the brain is the apparatus for processing consciousness. And if you right. alter the configuration of that apparatus, you will have a different type of experience, which would explain why when someone has brain damage, gets in a car accident, for example, we could say, wow, the person has memory loss or has loss in vision. And we can point to the parts of the brain that were damaged. It's because the apparatus has been altered, not yep. that which is coming through the apparatus. So in that respect, when we get to the soul level, well, how do you explain or what do you think the soul, the soul level of, of absolute awareness, how that is connected to consciousness? Hmm. Any thoughts on that? I think they are interconnected. So an analogy that I often reference is from philosopher Dr. Bernardo Castrup. He says that we are whirlpools within a stream of water, where water is like consciousness. So the individual's sense of experiencing, the individual mind or individuated awareness is part of the stream that's localized to a particular experience in that whirlpool. But it's wow. part of the broader whirlpool of the expanded consciousness. So it's the paradox, and to me, this is the biggest paradox of all of reality, is individuation within interconnectivity. They exist at the same time. Oh, yeah, okay. So maybe individuality is a, is a slight phase shift in the energy from one energy to another, and it maintains <clears throat> its, its quantum entanglement, you know, but it also has the ability to entangle at other levels so people can communicate i love this sort of thing this is just amazing i love the conversation we're having yeah me too well another jerry another way to think about it because you're, you're taking it to a new level i think you could consider the whirlpools and the stream itself mm -hmm. to be multi-dimensional oh um perfect right so, so that's why you have the, the strangeness that we experience and you reminded me of what rupert spira says he's a non-dual spiritual philosopher he says that everything we experience is like a modulation of consciousness so it's modulated or vibrating or something like that at different yeah. rates and has the interconnectivity so then you end up with these very unique experiences as individual whirlpools and that modulation would you know another way of explaining that is a phase shift in the right. field you know so because a whirlpool is a phase shift and it's in a steady state Wow. Well, that's, that's like, you know, hmm, my brain is digesting that now. Brilliant. <laughs> Just brilliant. Oh, huh. um, well, maybe that's your next book, you know, <laughs> you know, what, what is it? Um, the name of your book? Up, uh, all upside down something. Oh yeah. Up, and into upside down. And into upside down quantum entanglement. <laughs> 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 yeah, I touch on quantum entanglement in my books, but all these topics, they could be their own book, you know, that I, I only scratch the surface. Yeah, sure. I understand that. Well, this, you're a brilliant guy. I can't wait to see what you write next. <laughs> Thank you. So, um, psychic abilities, you know, and I have had plenty. Have you ever had any psychic um, experiences that were overt and like, oh my God, that was really a psychic experience? 
I've had mild, mild synchronicities, having a sense something was going to happen, thinking about someone, then they call nothing extreme that probably not nothing along the lines of what you've experienced. Well, you know, mine is kind of a unique story anyway, but <laughs> um, have you met any people hung out with them that were just so profoundly psychic? It was like you're sitting on the set of the twilight zone. Yes. I have friends who are like that. And actually we didn't talk about this in my journey, but it was a big part of my introduction to consciousness and my worldview shift. Okay. Remember I was atheist agnostic. There's no, <laughs> so this is such a massive shift from where, if you had talked to me, Jerry, like eight years ago, seven years ago, it was different, different human. Different I mean, and it's the same in certain ways, but very different. I, said, um, hey, uh, I Mark, you're, you're going to be writing these books and you're going to be very much into psychic stuff. Let's just start now. <laughs> Get out of here, kid. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, I, I was intrigued by what I was hearing in the, on the podcasts I was listening to and some of the scientific evidence I was coming across that I've written about now that psychic phenomena are at least real on a statistical level, meaning someone might not be psychic 100% of the time, but they're psychic beyond what chance would predict. So I said, I've got to try this out. And I came across various psychics in my research and met some and energy healers and various things. There were some people that could do things a few times that I couldn't explain. So that was more validation. Yeah, repeatable things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I've had that too. Um, I, I've known people <clears throat> that could do some of the spookiest shit you've ever seen. I'm talking about, it was out there, man. Um, I won't go into all of it, but one person <laughs> you might want to look into is... Um, Oh, what a doc, doctor, what the hell's wrong with my mind? Um, I'll think of it in a minute. Richard Ireland, Dr. Richard Ireland. His son's name is Mark Ireland. I did an interview with him. Hell of a guy. Really nice fellow. Mm -hmm. And he has a nonprofit where he's validating psychics. Anyway, um... It might be worth your time to um, just have a conversation with him. Hmm. Just tell him yeah. I sent you. I'll, I'll see okay. if I can get you the information. Thanks. Because his experience with his father, and I'm telling you what, his father, if you look, go on YouTube and look for Dr. Richard Ireland, you'll see some clips from the 1950s when he was on um, one of those talk shows at night. It wasn't Johnny Carson. It was the guy before him. Oh my gosh. Well, I got to experience that firsthand and it was just numbing. I mean, how can this even possibly be with all the experiences I've had? This guy was far beyond anything I'd ever experienced. Wow. So, um, have you seen the, the TV show medium? No. Oh, you should watch that. Alison Dubois. She's a Scottsdale girl. It's, um, I don't know. It's, seven years i think it's seven years of episodes so it'd be you know seven seven whatever they're called but uh went over seven years anyway this is a real person and the things in that show are really pretty much what happened and what she was capable of so you'd find that very interesting just to watch mm. it you know we binge watched it a couple three months ago just to see it again because it's so damn good 
Um, <clears throat> but, you know, this idea of how the brain and this field of energy that is our true self and the brain and the body are incorporating that. But like you said, we have little filters that are keeping us from just, you know, seeing everything. Um, but I think it's, I think it's spot on that, you know, what we've got going on here in our bodies, that's a machine and the true power behind running the machine is the program running it. And that's our consciousness, you know, consciousness, awareness, or spiritual state of being, all of that stuff. Um, but I've seen plenty of scientific evidence for, I mean, hell, they've done it for me. They, <laughs> it's like, yeah, sure. Yeah, you can make that cancer go away. You can make that bone heal, blah, 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 blah. Let's find out. Let's test it. <laughs> and, of course, testing. And they're like, we have to test some more. How the hell did you do that? <laughs> so, anyhow. Um, so, in, in light of this, <clears throat> I mean, <clears throat> excuse me, we've got it to the point now to where this is the machine and we're surrounded with the energy and the energy is our spiritual essence. What do you think happens when we die? I think that energy continues. That's the short version. And if we go back to the whirlpool analogy, mm-hmm. it's as if the whirlpool delocalizes. So it stops being a localized whirlpool, but the water doesn't leave the stream. It just changes into a new form. And to me, that's the analogy for what happens at bodily death. The localized experience of Jerry, of Mark, isn't there in the same way. It's just the new configuration. Now, what exactly happens? What does that new configuration look like? It's a very intriguing topic that I've covered in some of my books. I think we have glimpses of this from the near-death experience which is, I think, a very important phenomenon and, and a confusing one in, in many ways because there are similarities across cases, both across cultures and across time, but there are also differences and anomalies. And it's hard to to reconcile all the different pieces, probably because it's so multidimensional. But I think this is an important topic because these are instances in which a person's brain is sometimes off. The person is clinically dead cardiac arrest, for example, and Dr. Pim von Lommel, a Dutch cardiologist, ran a study on this look, and it was published in the Lancet Medical Journal of cardiac arrest survivors, people who then were resuscitated. They should have no conscious experience, let alone an experience that was, quote unquote, realer than real, which is what happens in a near-death state. And they're experiencing unconditional love. And Dr. Bruce Grayson from the University of Virginia has a, a scale of NDEs where you basically check off the elements to show whether or not you had a true NDE or not, near-death experience abbreviation. Right. Um, but he, what Dr. Van Lommel found in those uh, in the cardiac arrest study was that 18% of people had a near-death experience. It should be 0%. What's going on? Um, I'll give you another example that has been very compelling for me. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a comment. Subscriptions and your comments cost nothing, but it really helps us out a lot. To hear the entire interview you were just listening to and many, many other amazing interviews within our archives, please visit jerrywillshow.com and become a member. Your membership supports our ongoing broadcasts. That's jerrywillshow.com. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this program.